everybody! It is time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. You know, there's a saying in the United States that goes like this. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. It means that when times get hard, those who are tough endure. In reference to our faith, we could tweak the saying a bit. When the faith gets tough, the faithful get tougher. I was reading a response the other day to a review of Rod Dreyer's book, Live Not by Lies. He analyzes ways that Christians have responded to persecution. He actually writes about the young Slovak photographer, Timo Kritzga, whose grandfather, a Greek Catholic priest, Greek Catholic clergy can marry, by the way, had been forced out of the priesthood because he refused to obey the government's orders. Several years ago, Kritzka set out to honor his ancestor's sacrifice by interviewing and photographing the still-living Slovak survivors of communist persecution, including original members of Father Kolakovich's fellowship called The Family. As he made his rounds around his country, Kritzka was shaken up not by the stories of suffering he heard, these he expected, but by the intense inner peace radiating from these elder believers. These men and women had been around Kritzka's age when they had everything taken from them but their faith in God. And yet, over and over, they told their young visitor that imprisoned they found inner liberation through suffering. One Christian, separated from his wife and five children and cast into solitary confinement, testified that he had moments then that were like paradise. It seemed that the less they were able to change the world around them, the stronger they had become, Kritzka tells me. These people completely changed my understanding of freedom. My project changed from looking for victims to finding heroes. I stopped building a monument to the unjust past. I began to look for a message for us, the free people. I don't want to spoil the book's ending, but it has to do with the paradox that the poorer and more restrained these Christians were by circumstances, the greater their faith had been. Kritzka finally realized that all his freedom and all his worldly success as an artist who grew up in the post-communist era had enabled his anxieties and desires to establish a tyranny over his imagination. I know, this is not a romp through the blue bonnet's epiphany, but it's real, and it's going to have to be the thing that gets faithful Christians through the hardships to come. That's Rod Dreyer, Evangelical Dislikes Live Not by Lies, in a review on the American Conservative. You know, the persecution that we are facing in our world today is not so much overt in the United States, but more subversive. You know, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley imagined the future in two different ways when they wrote their books. Orwell wrote his book, 1984, in the year 1949, and imagined a dystopian future with Big Brother always watching. But Huxley's book, A Brave New World, was written in 1931, and he imagined the future very differently. Orwell feared that hate would ruin us, but Huxley feared that it would be pleasure. It's not an outright persecution from hostile powers, but one that comes through our pleasures. Now, I know when I say this, there are those that are listening in Bangladesh and India, in different parts of Africa and Asia and Europe, and you're experiencing something far different. And there are different kinds of persecution. There is the, what I call, hard persecution with threats of violence, And then there's the soft persecution, which is more about litigation. Sure, it's hard to be faithful when times are hard, in no matter what situation you find yourself. 
But most of us who are listening to my voice right now have not experienced the type of persecution that those in the early church suffered. Not that persecution is not going on in our world. It is. As a matter of fact, the 20th century is considered one of the most bloody centuries in all of church history toward Christians. And persecution is going on in our world. But for many of us, it's not where we are right now. It's in other places, in Iran, China, and in various other parts of the world. We do have persecution here in the U.S., but it's much more subtle and overt. At least it has been in the past, although I believe that's changing rapidly. Persecution is hostility or ill treatment based upon what we believe. And our persecution is in our media, our academic institutions, and in our legislation. We cannot be surprised by it. It has been this way since the beginning of time in almost every single culture. Christianity, as we saw last week, is a threat to how people live, no matter where they are. For it is a radical reorientation of our identity. From sin, status, and self to a savior. Sacrifice to a people and a purpose. Today, we're going to look at what we are to do when the faith gets tough, no matter where we are and no matter what we face. And we are going to face it. It might look different in our specific context, but there are principles that we can draw on from God's word that can encourage us and help us and provide a light to our path so that we might be able to walk as faithful Christ followers, bringing God's name glory through that. But before we do get to that, we have a word from our sponsors. And that is from Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicago land area, then you need to call Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and her team. You know, and I've told you before, that she comes with years of experience and loves people. Kathy's trustworthy and really does care about her clients. I know because I am one of them. She's my agent. She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped what, find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but has regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She's attentive to your needs and style and comes alongside you to help you discover and find what is best for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-4... Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. Now let's get into our text for today. We're in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. And this is what we read. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Last week, we saw Peter and John in front of the Jewish authorities testifying that Jesus is the Messiah and how it was Jesus who healed the man born lame. Knowing that the group of Jesus' followers was growing, they, they warned and threatened them not to speak or teach any, any more about the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. From there, we pick up with Peter and John in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In other words, they went back to the church, undoubtedly the leadership team, to tell them what the chief priests and elders had said to them. It had been a scary thing for many of them, although a a little bit comforting, oddly, at the same time. You know, these were the same people who had killed Jesus, and now their lives were being threatened. And not just their lives, but the lives of their loved ones, a loss of status, reputation, money, home, and the safety of their spouses, and don't forget their children. Yet, at the same time, they had to feel a measure of comfort. Because Jesus had told them all of this would happen. Didn't Jesus say that the world will hate you because it's hated me? But we are to find courage because he has overcome the world. Huh. Jesus did tell them that all of this would happen. And not to mention, he was killed, but he also rose from the dead. Undoubtedly, there was a fear mixed with an ever-growing faith. Now, what did they do, and what are we to do when we see persecution? You know, when the faith gets tough, the faithful, first of all, pull together. They don't go put it out on Facebook. They don't have to blog about it. They don't need to put it out on their social media feeds. But they pull together as a body of believers. We do need one another. God calls us to be a part of a family, a group of believers, also known as his building and called his church. If you have that in your community, I know that there are some listening to my voice that may not have that opportunity, but I've been in those small little church dwellings, those little private rooms in the back of a home away from authorities where there's only one little light bulb and four or five believers huddle together away from the crowds and the authorities because they are fearful for their lives. And then there are those very large churches where thousands come together. I've been in churches hewn into cliffs. I've been into been in churches in great cathedrals. I've been in small groups. I've been at a church in Lebanon in a high-rise that every time that they had a service, the landlords turned off the power. And so it was night, and we had to worship together with our cell phones and cups put on top of them as the light shone through and they looked like little mini fluorescent light bulbs as these believers came together and sang and prayed and worshipped and read the word of God by the light on their cell phone. These groups were pulling together. God calls us to be a part of a family, a group of believers, also known as his building, called his church. We are to be together as his people. The devil has got so many believers, not so much with persecution, but with pleasure and busyness. We can't pull together because we're too busy to be involved, too lost in our own lives, and too concerned with our own comforts that God becomes an afterthought or an extracurricular, a fun addition to our lives, but one that is not essential for living and being. We need to be moderate, we tell ourselves. We don't want to be radical or one of those crazy people. It is in many respects, inconsequential because it's not in our verbiage to be on fire for God. But we are called to be. Our lives, oftentimes in our modern culture, do not bear the marks of a disciple of Jesus. True disciples will pull together in his body. 
And as his disciples, we can't be surprised by persecution. I am continually amazed at how quickly we lament what's going on in our culture and throw up our hands in despair, trying to legislate our way out of our situations, but don't realize that persecution is inevitable. Please do not misunderstand me. Legislation is not evil, and while it is uh, or it does guard against some form of evil, it can't change the heart or purpose of why God saved us. God saved us to take a stand and testify about Jesus no matter what government we might find ourselves under. And the creaturely comforts may be a blessing from God, or it may be the devil giving us gifts and pleasures in order to distract us from fulfilling our purpose to testify about Jesus. When we testify about Jesus, there will be persecution. There always is. Because Jesus' death is a declaration of on all of our sin. And to stay in our sin means death, but to embrace embrace Jesus' death means life and peace to the believer who is surrendered to him, though it means upheaval and dramatic change for those who love their sin and have no wish to leave it behind. Jesus himself said that the world will hate us because of him, and if the world persecuted him, then it will undoubtedly persecute us as his followers. And while we should not be surprised by persecution, we also cannot be a solitary Christian. A solitary Christian is really a misnomer, an inaccurate description. In America, there are those who try and testify the church is not necessary to be a believer in Christ. We hear this all the time. Well, I am spiritual but not religious, or I can be a Christian and not go to church. It is an option. But such thinking is misguided, inaccurate, unbiblical, and dare I say demonic. It exalts the individual without following the various scriptures that testify being saved into a body of believers. Those who are of the solitary Christian sort are laws unto themselves, where no one is good enough, solely bent on fulfilling their own evil desires to be their own authority. No one ever is good enough or biblical enough to follow. And there are those who have been hurt. And I lament that fact. But that doesn't mean that the institution needs to be removed. There are those who are quick to criticize each and every church, finding hypocrisy or one minor item of doctrine that gives them legitimacy to stay away and become authority unto themselves. Man may seek to do what is right in his own eyes, but the Bible teaches that we are saved into a body of believers who testify by their words and their deeds that Jesus is the Christ, the one true Son of God. Peter and John went and spoke to the other leaders and pulled together so that they might seek God's face as to why what they were to do next. And God desires that we spur one another on to action. I want to show you a passage from the book of Hebrews for a moment that I believe to be highly relevant to our present discussion. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 31. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Notice that the author is calling us to hold fast the confession of our hope. And we are to consider how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another more and more in our pursuit of Jesus. The author transitions to speaking to us about sinning deliberately after we have come to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. But notice the last part. The Lord will judge his people. The the entire passage is pregnant with the idea of us being together and helping one another to follow Jesus more closely. Why? So that we might avoid sin and God's judgment in our lives. He will respond and intervene in our lives, short term or long. He will make sure that we are repaid for the evil we have done and how we have turned away from his name. Rather than having a fearful expectation of judgment, we should find ways to become more like Christ. Pushing one another to follow Jesus more closely, memorizing scripture, testifying to Jesus as Lord, resisting temptations, avoiding sin, living righteously, evangelizing and discipling others. And we're all going to fall short, but that doesn't mean that we try to stop. Who are you spurring on to pursue Jesus? Who is spurring you on? If you don't have someone, have someone, why not? If you are not spurring someone on, why not? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. When I was much younger, I used to be a pretty good runner. So good that when I was in sixth grade, I ran with the seventh graders and finished second in the Illinois State Junior High track meet. The next year, I came back to run as a seventh grader, feeling very confident. That was until the first practice. We had a new kid who was an eighth grader, and his name was John. We took off in our warm-up lap, and I came around so confident and full of myself when I see this new kid whiz past me. Try as hard as I could, I couldn't catch him. He beat me badly. This no-name kid that I never met before comes out of nowhere and had really thick glasses beat me. He didn't look like what I expected an athlete to look like, but I was humiliated. Little did I know that that was a foreshadowing of the entire year. Every practice he beat me, he was a superb athlete. We ran in different heats each meet, and while he was running with 8th graders and I was running with the 7th graders, every time we had a track meet, we would run right after each other. I would run with the 7th graders, and he would run with the 8th graders. I would win with the 7th graders, and I would break the school record. And the school record was only for the entire junior high. There wasn't one for 6th, 7th, and 8th, but just junior high. And I would break the school record, and then he would come along in the next heat running with the 8th graders and then beat my record. So my record would last for a total of five minutes. He would always come along and break my record. And I tried so hard to beat him every day. I wouldn't let up. He pushed me day in and day out. We ran in regionals, and I broke the state. I mean, broke the the school record again. Five minutes later, he broke the record I just had made. But we both won. He won for eighth grade, and I won for seventh grade. Then we went on to sectionals. Same result. Finally, it came time for the state track meet. I ran in my heat and won. I was a state champion and ended up breaking the state record for seventh grade boys. It was great. That was until the next heat. He beat my record and won for the 8th grade boys. What's my point? He pushed me. He spurred me to action, and he made me better. Who spurs you on to action? Who pushes you to be more like Jesus Christ? Get around those people. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Who is your rabbit? 
You know, in a marathon, the top runners have what they call rabbits. These are people that the race organizers have come into the race at various times to run ahead of the leaders. Why? So the leaders will chase them and go faster. We run faster when we know that there are those that have gone ahead of us. After giving a list of our ancestors in the faith in Hebrews 11, those in our spiritual family who ran the race of faith in Hebrews 11, we are told in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We must honor our spiritual ancestors by running the race that they ran, by enduring opposition, standing for what is true even though our earthly families may forsake us. But we stand firm and run, looking at Jesus, the greatest rabbit there ever was, who ran the race perfectly. We follow in his steps, knowing that we will find our greatest joy. But let's circle back to our text in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. You know, when the faith gets tough, the faithful pray expectantly. They came together to call on God. I am continually amazed at how little we pray. I pray that we might pray before it is too late and persecution really does come manifestly. We talk much about prayer, but we don't do it. Or when we do, we don't pray the way God has decreed. We pray selfishly to avoid suffering. Rarely do we pray for God's kingdom to advance. Why do we not pray? I think because we really don't want God. We are content without him or we're afraid of what he's going to say. We're afraid of what the changes that he will call on us to make. Or we simply believe that he won't answer. I mean, do you believe that God's going to answer you when you pray? Why wouldn't he? You might say, well, I'm not good enough. None of us is good enough to deserve an audience with the King of Kings. God calls us to pray expectantly, not because of how good we are, but because of how good he is. And he in his goodness has made himself available for us to call on. And he is guaranteed to answer when we pray according to his will as it is revealed in his word. That's what they did. Notice what or how they prayed in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They prayed scripturally. They prayed Psalm 2, 1 through 2. An acknowledgement that the world rages against God and tries to remove God and his Christ from their lives. But it is a futile endeavor. We need to pray scripture because scripture reminds us what is true. It keeps us in truth and continually cleanses our minds and keeps us from believing the devil's lies. The devil seeks to dampen or distract us from the task that God has for us. We need to be able to pray scripture, but how do we do it? We simply pray the scriptures that testify to our experience. The disciples testified that the peoples of the earth were raging against God and his Christ that was lived as the Romans and Jews both had rejected him and participated in Jesus' crucifixion and death. For example, when we testify to someone that there is no God, or we testify to someone and they say that there is no God, we remember and pray Psalm 14.1. 
that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Or if we are feeling threatened, isolated, and alone, we pray Psalm 46, 1 through 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. When people challenge the word of God, we pray 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. These are just three examples, and there are thousands more. We need to know the word so that we might have our minds renewed, spirits encouraged, and our hearts refreshed. The word testifies about who Jesus is, and his word is to be held in high regard because it is sufficient to teach us about who Jesus is and save us and is sufficient evidence to testify against us to condemn us. We also pray securely, meaning that we pray according to God's plans. Look at verse 24. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They begin by referring to God as the sovereign Lord. By addressing him as sovereign, they are acknowledging that he is ruler of all. He is completely powerful, and nothing happens without his allowance. He is the creator of all things, maker of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. They are acknowledging that he rules over everything, and what happened to Jesus didn't happen apart from God's plans. It was actually part of it. God brought about the death of his son to secure our redemption. We pray, knowing that God's plan will come to pass. We do not pray like those who are uncertain or those who are unsure. We pray like those who have been transformed, knowing that God's plans will come to pass, even our sufferings. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were reciting what God had brought to pass. Jesus was God's servant, his anointed, but the nations were gathered together against him. Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, did what God had predestined to take place. The word for predestined is a compound word that means boundaries and limits established beforehand, and that means before creation. God predestined the death of Jesus before the foundation of the world. It was God's will to put him to death. This didn't happen by accident. It was God's will to bruise him. It is God's will to use us to bring the message of hope through our lives and words. Nothing can happen to us without God's allowance, and that should bring us comfort, because he is good. That doesn't mean that we won't experience hardship. I'm pretty sure there will be. But that does mean that he will be with us through it, and will give us the peace and sense of his presence as we do so. When we pray, we pray in the knowledge that he is in control. He controlled the circumstances around Jesus' death, and he will control the circumstances around our life. Prayer is a reminder for us that he is in charge and is directing things for his benefit. So we, play, we pray scripturally, secretly, and we also pray simply. 
In saying that we pray securely, we also pray simply, meaning we pray according to what we are facing. God is concerned with the situations and circumstances that we face. He wants us to bring the details of our lives to Him. Do you know that He wants you to pray about your marriage, your pain, your children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, friends, all of the relationships in your life, your coworkers and classmates, or the stresses you experience at your job or in your school? You know, I believe in business prayer. There's no use trying to have some type of flowery language before a God, coming to Him as if He didn't know what you needed. Instead, tell Him plainly what it is that you need help in. That's what the disciples did. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. This is the situation we're facing. They weren't playing around. They were facing a situation greater than they knew what to do, and they needed Him to intervene. What in your life do you need God to intervene right now? In your marriage, with your children, maybe in your singleness, in your job, in your calling, in your finances, your health. Cast your cares on him because he does care for you. And notice the content of their prayer. They didn't pray for their circumstances to go away, which is really tempting for every single one of us. They prayed for strength to bear up underneath them. Look at verse 29 again. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. When we face persecution or resistance for our faith, we need to ask God to prepare us. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at their faith. They didn't ask for their situation to be removed, but they asked for God to change them, to give them power to continue on in this ministry. We need God's intervention if we're to do the ministry that God has given us. We need that here at Apollos Watered. We need God's intervention because we can't do this in and of ourselves. And I have been... I've never been more convinced that this is what God has, but I've also not been more overwhelmed and more reliant on him. We need him to prepare us for the task ahead. And that means hardship, suffering, fear, fear of the future, fear of what could happen, knowing we're going to face opposition of some sort. They knew they would face opposition and even for them, possibly death. And who knows? For those who are listening to my voice right now, that might be what you're facing. However, they asked for God to help them accomplish the task, to give them the strength necessary to stand against opposition and testify on Jesus' behalf. What are we asking God to prepare us for? First of all, we need God to give us confidence. You know, the Greek word used for boldness here refers to speaking freely with confidence in the face of opposition. It's interesting that almost every English translation uses the word boldness, except the New American Standard Bible that uses the word confidence. It means having a bold resolve of leaving a witness that something deserves to be remembered. We have to know what we believe is true and weighty. You know, the Thessalonians had received the word of God with power and understood the weightiness of what they had received and what they were communicating as we read in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. We don't have the words of men, but the word of God that we are called to communicate. 
Confidence comes in the knowledge of surety of something. And the disciples had confidence in their message. For they had seen the risen Jesus face to face. They knew he was the real deal. They knew he didn't just pass out. That he didn't swoon. That he'd been beaten down and people thought he was dead, but he really was alive. They No, they knew he was dead and then they knew he was alive again. And even then, they knew they were they need they were they knew that they were going to have to be reminded of it when they faced opposition. We constantly need reminders, which is another reason we need one another because we sharpen one another. And there is a second aspect of this confidence, and that is courage. We all need courage. Courage is the ability to stand in the face of opposition. It's not the absence of fear as much as it is the ability to stand in the face of opposition when you are afraid. We all have fears. Fears of what others will think of us. Fears of what will happen to us. Fears of what our family will say. Fear of shaming those around us. Bringing them dishonor. Fear of disappointing God. Fear of saying the wrong things. Fear that, fear that our lives will not measure up. Fear is a motivator. Which is why the Bible says time and time again, fear not. God knows our faults, but he loves us through Christ regardless. The disciples knew that they were going to face opposition, possible alienation, accusations of dishonoring their family, accusations of dishonoring their faith, and perhaps even accusations of blaspheming God. They knew all of the possible obstacles that stood in their way, which is why they prayed for courage. They needed to testify in the face of opposition, and they needed God's strength to do so. They needed help, and they knew that God could give it. But they didn't just pray for courage. They prayed for God to confirm his message. Look at verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the Spirit place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They asked God to heal and perform signs and wonders in Jesus' name. Later in 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The word for pursue is a present command for us to do, and it's not singular, but it's plural in its scope. Paul says that we are all to pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts to be manifested in our body of believers. There is a yearning at work, a zealous desire for God's work to be seen in our midst, for these gifts to be seen. We are to earnestly desire for God to confirm his work in our lives so that others might see and know who he is. I love how this passage ends in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It was a sign that God had heard their prayer. I'm not sure how often God does that, but I want God to shake the room when I'm preaching. When we, or when we start to pray, that, that'd be awesome. When the faith gets tough, the faithful ask God to intervene, to show himself to be God. But first, there needs to be a yearning, a yearning for God to show himself. Do we have that yearning? Do you yearn? For God to show himself as God, to show himself to be God in your life, in the life of your loved ones, to show himself to be God in your marriage, in your workplace, in your nation. We need to yearn for God to work and we need to be bold. 
but we need to ask God to make us bold together. That's my prayer and hope for this week. And that's it for today. If you, if this episode has helped you so that you can water your world, then would you do us a favor? First of all, please hit that subscribe button, whatever your preferred podcast app is, leave us a review. And then would you mind interacting with us on our social media pages? Make sure you fan our page, write a comment on it. Let us know you're listening and where you're listening from. And also share any questions that you might have, and we'll try to answer those on future episodes. And you would do us the greatest honor to share this episode with other people. Secondly, would you consider being a part of our watering team, our Apollos Army? We're looking for people to pray for us as we go about this ministry. Without God building this house, this ministry, the builders labor in vain who build it. And we are looking for financial partners. If you would like to partner with us to water the world for Jesus, then go to our website at apolloswater.org and hit the support us button. We're looking for monthly supporters, and, and you can pick any of the different categories that are there, what you can afford, and that ranges from $2 a month to $50 a month or so much more, whatever you feel God is leading you to do, and just hit the appropriate button. Of course, I also want to let you know about our next Apollos Watered Men's Retreat Weekend. We will be meeting at Phantom Ranch Bible Camp in Muckwanago, Wisconsin, where we're going to open the Word of God and talk about how we might thrive in our modern Babylon. Last time that we were together, we just started to scratch the surface, and this time we're going to press much deeper, and we're looking for God to bring all of those that He wants there. How do we live and how do we be equipped to follow Jesus in the midst of this world? And that's taking place from Friday, April 23rd of 2021 to Sunday, April 25th of 2021. And our theme, once again, is Thriving in Babylon. And before I go today, I do want to make sure that I recognize those who are deserving of honor. I want to thank Kevin O'Brien, our chief strategy officer and editor. I also want to thank our social media team, Eliana Fleming and Rebecca Bedall. And I want to thank Brian Dana, our audio engineer who always manages to make us sound so good. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.